And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is our, our second week here studying this book. We began last week with sort of an introduction. And uh, we're looking at what it means to live faithfully and live with hope as exiles in this world. And the title of today's message is Because of His Great Mercy. And we're just going to look at verses 3 through 5 today. And while you're finding your place there in First Peter, I just want to make mention of uh, and remind you, I think it should be in your bulletin, we've had it in the weekly and on social media, but we have a congregational to meet, meeting tonight at 5 o'clock right here in the sanctuary. And, and our main goal with that is just to sort of keep our church family informed of what's been happening and also what we have coming up and give you a chance to ask some questions if, if there's things on your mind. And so we'll have different ministry leaders sort of sharing what's been happening. And uh, we want to try to keep that, we're going to try to keep that during the kids club and middle school time so that if you are, you're coming already to drop kids off, you can, uh, we'll try to be finished by the time it's, it's it, it, by the time it, they get out and you can grab them. So we'd love to, love to see you here for that time of information. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If you found your place there, I'd love you to follow along as, as we read these three verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These three beautiful verses sort of form a summary of the salvation that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. It's sort of a distilling of what, what has happened through Jesus' death and resurrection and the new life that we have as a result. These Three verses are actually part of a, a long run-on sentence in the original Greek. Verses 3 through 12 is one, one long sentence in the original. Translators have broken it up so that it can digest it a little bit better in the English language. But Peter here is just launching into this hope-filled um, uh, word of praise as he's laying this foundation for encouraging and strengthening the believer's who are about to face some times of trial, and who already have faced times of trial. One scholar says, there, there are a few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas come together. This is a precious passage that I hope will encourage you this morning. As we think about it, I, I sort of broke it up into uh, past, present, and future tense, and the way that God's salvation works not only in, in our, our past when we trusted Christ as our Savior, but also in our present as we walk with Him now and what it looks like for our future. Peter has something to say about each of these places. The first one is, in the past, we see that there is a new birth. For those who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, that, that has happened already. It's a reality. It's a, it's a true thing. He says, because of His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope. This new birth is, is the doctrine of regeneration. It's spiritual life that is infused into God's people. 
Uh, th- this, this word is a little bit unique to Peter. In fact, he's the only one who uses this Greek word in the New Testament. It's used here, and he uses it again in verse 23. But the concept of the new birth is not unique to Peter. We see it all over the pages of the New Testament. You remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he wanted to, didn't want others to know what he was, what he was about, especially his fellow uh, Pharisees. And then he was seeking Jesus and asking questions. And he, and he came to him and Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of us who have grown up around the church, we're used to born again type language. But imagine if you, if you were completely new to Christianese, you didn't speak the language, you, you hadn't heard this terminology before, you and I would have been in the same boat as Nicodemus because we, we chuckle at his response, but we probably would have done the same thing. He asked Jesus, am I, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? I don't understand this. Nicodemus was confused because it was a, it was a deeply spiritual truth. And Jesus explained to him, no, 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 I'm talking about a, a, a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual newness that must transpire for us to be a part of God's family. Scripture teaches that apart from Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. We've all seen dead things. You drive through Michigan here, and, and you don't have to drive very far before you see roadkill. And, and you, it's very clear when, when those things are dead. There's, there's no life there whatsoever. I won't go into a description is to, you know, some of the indicators is to death there, but you, you, you understand, like, that thing's gone. There's, there's nothing there. There's no life. And, and what Peter says is that when, when we enter into this world, we're spiritually dead. We're separated from God. We have no spiritual life in us. We need to have spiritual life breathed into us by God. That's regeneration. That's newness of life. It's the, the dead coming alive. He says here, it's, it's, we're given this, res, this um, new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He came alive from the dead physically so that we can come alive from the dead spiritually. And, and, and what this does is it means like everything is completely new. Paul tells us in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, that uh, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. We are not who we once were because of the new life. You have been born again if you are a Christian, and that means that you're a miracle. God has worked His miraculous life-giving power in your life. Karen Jobes has said it's difficult to imagine a more sweeping concept than a new birth. Just as people receive their ethnic identity, their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, and their innate potentialities from their biological parents, Christians have a new identity and a new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and character. You think about all the things that are true of you because of your physical birth. Your physical traits, you look like your parents, your, 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 uh, the, 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 the cultural things that you accumulated through growing up in your house and your, that particular, those particular decades in that particular city, in that particular community, all these things that have formed to shape who you are physically and emotionally, 
that your, your physical birth is, is a pretty substantial thing. Well, the concept of our spiritual birth is the same way. It redefines everything about us. No, it doesn't change our looks per se, but it changes who we are, what our allegiances are, what we value, how we spend our time. It, it redefines everything. And this is what's happened if you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The past, it was a pretty miraculous event for those of you who've experienced it, for those of you who know Jesus. But then, moving into the present, Peter says that we have a living hope. This new birth, something that happened back here, has brought us into a place where we have a living hope. Again, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope, he says, is alive. Now, hope is one of those words that, again, maybe like being born again. If you, if you hear it enough, if, you, if you're just kind of used to it as a Christian, it can pass right by us without any deep meaning. And besides, we kind of define hope differently in, in different ways in, in our culture. You, you may think of hope as sort of a wishful thinking, as something like, like I, I hope the lions make it to the Super Bowl. And people, people laugh. And you're kind of like, oh, isn't that adorable? That's cute. Look at you, you dreamer. But the Bible doesn't use the word hope that way. Jesus, when He speaks of hope, Paul and Peter, the New Testament writers, when they speak of hope, they're not talking about some crazy dream. Okay, yeah, you can go ahead and have that. Lions winning the Super Bowl, sure. They're talking about this, this rooted expectation. There's this confidence. There's this dependability there that infuses a a hope that is, well, it's alive, Peter says. It's this confidence that God is at work, that He is doing something, that He is, he is at work for our good, at work bringing about His sovereign will. You, you see, sometimes we can begin to think that if we don't have a good theology of hope and a good theology of God's workings, we can begin to think that God's on autopilot sometimes. That like maybe He checks out. It's like, I'll come back in a couple of years or a couple of decades or a couple of millennia and we'll see how things are going and just make sure everything's still on track. Have you ever been doing that, been on, on a task or doing a job and you sort of check out for a while and you realize like, I don't, I don't know what I just did here. I don't know what I just said to that person or I don't know what I just wrote here in that email or like I was just kind of like my mind was elsewhere. Yesterday, uh, Nico and I were working on burying some line in our yard and I, he was taking a little rest and I was digging uh, and, and I, I had lost my, I was kind of lost in my thoughts and I was kind of, you know, just not really thinking about what I was doing and, and all of a sudden I looked back at the line that I was working on and it had, you could see where my mind started to wander because all of a sudden the line started to really veer off course and to go back and correct it because I was just checked out of what I was actually doing. And it could be easy to think that God's the same way, that He's sort of checked out sometimes. But you see, the reason that the Christian has a living hope is that we know that God is at work here. He, Peter needs suffering Christians to know that. 
He leads with this because he knows how important that is. When you're, at a, when you're facing a, a place where you're suffering or, or you feel like an exile, like you don't belong as a follower of Christ, you don't fit in in this world, you need to have a, a hope that you know God is at work. You know God knows what he's doing even if you can't figure it out. And that's where our hope is. And, it, and he says it's a living hope. It's, it's teeming with life. It's active because it meets us right where we are. Scriptural truth, we have to remember, is not over here some meaningless doctrine that doesn't meet me where I'm at and the stuff that I'm doing, getting my hands dirty or going to work or changing diapers or whatever, going to soccer games, whatever it is. Like God's truth about our hope is not over here separate from what we actually, our lived reality is. He brings them together and he says it's a living hope. It's, it's alive because it's meaningful. It speaks to us right where we are. You see, for many of the Greek thinkers in those days, to live was to despair. They knew nothing of this kind of hope. The, 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 the Greek mentality, at least among some of the philosophers, was that this despair in life was to be followed by sleep in the unending night of the next life. And there could have been a temptation for some of these Christians to return to their old way of thinking or to be influenced by the thinking of unbelievers around them, that despair. Peter says there's a living hope that you can grab a hold of that meets you where you are today. I want to ask you, my brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a hope that's alive? Not just wishful thinking, not just I, I wish things were better in life but a true, active, living hope. And then finally, he mentions the future, the, the past, the new birth, the present, a living hope, and thirdly, the future, there's an indestructible inheritance. An indestructible inheritance. I love how he describes this. He says that we're but we've been given a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance, verse 4, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He wants to modify or to clarify or to expand on this idea of what our inheritance looks like. He doesn't specify exactly what it, what it is, but he says, here's what I want you to know about this inheritance that's waiting for you. He says it's imperishable. There's no expiration date. I like this picture because I remember back in college, uh, we had a refrigerator in our dorm that some of the guys would throw stuff in, you know, maybe went out to eat with their buddies or brought something from the dining hall and you'd put it in there and you'd inevitably forget about it, gets pushed to the back and uh, you know, there'd be times on a Saturday afternoon when you're like, oh man, I could use a snack. You open up the refrigerator door, you're rooting around and you're like, what's this? And uh, not even modern science could tell you exactly what that was or what it used to be, we'd like cast lots or take votes, like, what do you think this is? What do you think it is? And, uh, you know, dare each other to try to eat it. And you're like, come on, like, we're, we are college guys, but we're not total savages. Like, there's no way. Uh, things have an expiration. That's why, that's why ramen noodles are so popular in college. You know, it's like you could find one in the back of the cupboard that like, was from like 1983, you'd be like, hey, you know this is still good, right? Yeah, let's cook it up. 
But there are certain things that are perishable, and it's not a bad idea to pay attention to some of those dates. But Peter wants us to know that the inheritance that's waiting for us, it's, it doesn't have an expiration date. It's never going to spoil, never going to go out of style, never going to fade away. That's what the second word there is undefiled. Some of your translations will say spoil, but the, it's probably better translated undefiled because it's, it's the picture of something beautiful that loses its, that, that, that loses its luster and beauty, or in this case, that will not lose its luster. It's, it's sort of that idea of finding a, uh, a, a, a beautiful treasure, a beautiful gem, and knowing that it's not going to corrode or rust with time. I think all of us have experienced a a glimmer of beauty in our life. Maybe it's watching a a gorgeous sunset or capturing a, a special moment with family. And as much as you are in the moment and you enjoy that beautiful gift from God in the moment, there's always a twinge of sadness. C.S. Lewis writes about this. There's always a twinge of sadness as it fades away. As much as you took the time to enjoy that in the moment, you're sad to see it go because it was so beautiful, so enjoyable for that moment. And the picture here is that this beauty, the beauty of our inheritance, it's not going to fade away. It's not going to disappear. And that's the last word is unfading. It's not going to ride off into the sunset. It's not going to be sand slipping through our fingers. Again, he doesn't explain exactly what this inheritance is, but the New Testament tells us this is, this is our eternal uh, home, the presence of Jesus Christ and all of the beauty and the glory and the treasures that come from spending that eternity with him. And he says it's kept in heaven for us. Do you know this morning that if you're a child of God that you have an eternal inheritance that's not going anywhere? It's waiting for you because it's been secured by the blood of Christ and promised by the word of God to be yours forever. You see, once again, for those who are struggling and suffering, those who are are battling with temptation and trials, it's a blessing to know that in the past, we've been given new life. In the present, we have a living hope. And in the future, we have this eternal inheritance. What do we do with these truths? How does it impact us where we are? I just wrote down three things here, the first of which is rejoice in His mercy. We rejoice in His mercy. You see, that, that's, the, that's the motive, the driving factor behind God doing all of that, all of this for us. Did you catch that in verse 3? Because of His great mercy, He has given us. It all comes back to the mercy of God. You and I are here this morning, we said this last week, but you and I are here this morning, not because you're more clever than your unbelieving neighbor who's not here or not in a follower of Christ, not because your resume looked more impressive to God and He signed you up. We're here because God chose to have mercy on you and me. And the idea behind mercy is that it's not deserved, it's not earned. In fact, the picture of mercy is that we deserve something else. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. 
And yet we're told because God had mercy upon us, he has showered us with a new birth and a living hope and an indestructible inheritance. Francis of Assisi was not yet the person that he was to become. He was sort of on that cusp of whether or not he would believe. And one day he was riding a horse down the road that went by a leper hospital situated far from Assisi. For then, as in biblical times, lepers were a rejected lot set outside of the city. So Francis was still caught in this place between the lure of wealth and glory and the life of discipleship, of following Christ. And as he rode along, he was absorbed in his thoughts. And suddenly, the horse jerked to the side of the road. With difficulty, Francis pulled him back on course. But as Francis looked up, he recoiled at the sight of a leper in the middle of the road. He was a gray specter with a stained face and a shaved head, dressed in gray sackcloth. He did not speak, and he showed no sign of moving or of getting out of the way. He looked at the rider of the horse with a fixed and strange, acutely penetrating gaze. An instant that seemed to be an eternity passed by. Slowly, Francis dismounted, went to the man, and took his hand. It was a poor, emaciated hand, blood-stained and cold like that of a corpse. Francis pressed the, hand against, pressed the hand and brought it to his lips. He kissed the lacerated flesh of this poor man, who was the most abject, the most hated, the most scorned of all human beings. And he was flooded with a wave of emotion that shut out everything around him. At that moment, he began to grasp the mercy of God toward him. Someone who is considered a cast-off and by every right should be a castaway. And God comes down from his throne and embraces us and draws us near and calls us his sons and daughters. And doesn't just invite us to his home, but brings us to be part of his family. This is the mercy of God. And we rejoice in the mercy of God. It's impossible for God to be more merciful to us than he is. Ephesians 2.4 tells us that he's rich in mercy. When it comes to mercy, our Father is loaded. He never runs dry. His wallet is never empty. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, the Apostle Paul even gives him the title, the Father of Mercies. Our God is a merciful, merciful God. And everything He does in our lives, every interaction, though it may not seem like it, flows from His heart of mercy. Paul Tripp lists all kinds of God's mercies, awe-inspiring mercies, 
rebuking mercies, strengthening mercies, hope-giving mercies, heart-exposing mercies, rescuing mercies, transforming mercies, forgiving mercies, provision-making mercies, uncomfortable mercies, glory-revealing mercies, truth-illuminating mercies, and courage-giving mercies. For our God is a God whose mercies are new every single morning. His faithfulness to us is great. And while His mercies may seem to us sometimes as a severe mercy, His loving hand never leaves us. His gentle heart never stops pursuing us. And my brothers and sisters, even though we may not always understand what's going on, what He's up to, or what his end game is, we can trust his merciful heart and we can rejoice in his mercies. Secondly, it kind of flows out of that, is that we worship his name. We rejoice in his mercies and we worship his name. That's how Peter starts this whole section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just wanted to start with praise. It's amazing what worship does to our own heart. When starting with gratitude, with praise, with lifting high the name of Jesus, it's amazing how that sets the tone for the rest of our day. When we're confronted with the mercies of God, we bless the name of God. How's your worship these days? You're taking time to rejoice in the mercy of God, to bless the name of God for His goodness in your life and for who He is. And then finally, we rest in His hands. We rest in His hands. Verse 5 Is, I mean, 3 and 4 are so packed that verse 5 is almost like a footnote, but it's, it's powerful. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the, in the last time. So he has said here that you've been given new life, living hope, future inheritance, and we can rejoice. All this is... is motivated and, and underpinned by the mercy of God. And so we can worship Him for that. And then, because of all of this, He says that we can, we can rest in His hands. He says, you are being guarded by God's power. And I love this, this word. In the, in the Greek, this is, a, this is a prison word. This is a word that speaks of, of being under lock and key of sentries, of, of, of a fortress. I'm picturing like a, <laughs> to, to kind of take one extreme that's always considered negative, but I'm picturing like a, a, a medieval castle in a dungeon. And there's this, there's this moat around the castle. And, and moats, like in, in the movies and stuff, there's always piranhas, even though piranhas don't live in, England, like medieval Europe, but I'm like picturing pranas in this moat, and, and there's this massive 
heavy gate and massive walls that, that cannot, be, cannot be overcome or penetrated by even the most powerful weapons. And then I'm picturing that in the, in the very recesses of, of this castle, there, there's, there's a dungeon there. And we'll make it a happy dungeon because that's where we're going with this. It's not all gloomy, but there's, you know, some paintings on the wall and some pleasant classical music playing in the background. The, the, the Bible's picturing here that, like, you're being held by that sort of a secure fortress by God. You're being guarded, as it were, protected, held in custody, this word can mean, detained. <laughs> he's, he's sort of creating this picture with an with a unlikely word picture, but making it positive. He's like, you're under lock and key. And we would normally be like, that's not a good thing. And he says, well, here it is. <laughs> it is a good thing. You're being kept that securely by God Almighty. Jesus put it this way in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're in the Father's hand. We're in the Son's hand. We're being protected by the power of the Spirit of God. The, the triune God is securing us in His loving arms. I don't know who needs to be reminded of this this morning, but these believers here were undergoing trial. We said last week, wasn't it the place historically where they were being dragged off to prison, Roman Colosseum, all that kind of stuff, like what Nero began to do in just a few years from here? But it was sort of that low-grade persecution being talked about behind your back for your faith, not being invited to parties, loss of a job or passed over for a promotion, those kinds of things. Family members not talking to you. But he knew that it was only going to increase and ramp up. For us this morning, maybe our sufferings or maybe our trials, our struggles look totally different. But this truth remains the same. This truth reminds us that no matter what you're facing, you are being held by the arms of God. You're being kept by His power. Through faith. It means we're not totally passive in this whole thing. It's by trusting Him. And He says, ready to be revealed in the last time. As we seek to walk with God in the midst of suffering and live with hope as exiles, I encourage you to remember these verses. Turn back to them and meditate on them this week. He's given us a new birth. He's given us a living hope. And we have waiting for us an inheritance that is not going anywhere. And we can worship God for his loving kindness because of that today. I want to invite you, if, if, if there's anything that God's doing in your heart and life and you would like to pray with somebody about it, we're going to have some folks up here after the service that would love to pray with you. If there's anything that, whether we've talked about it this morning or something else going on, um, please join us for prayer. But let's close now before our Lord. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you that we have hope.
hope, no matter what's going on. This confident expectation that you're at work and you're doing great and mighty things. And that you, you're going to hold us securely. God, give us a heart that steps back to reflect on your mercies, your loving kindness, your grace that comes to us in a thousand different ways. Give us eyes to see those mercies that may seem to us to be severe mercies or we may think that it's unpleasant or painful. May we see your mercy lining the storm clouds in our life. May we trust you. And we don't have the plan. And we don't have it figured out. And may the hope of our eternal reward give us confidence, give us strength to press on in the midst of hardship. Thank you, God, for your loving kindness to us. Thank you, God, for giving us new life through the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Now may the God of all grace and the Father of mercies be your exceeding joy, Christ your unfailing hope, and the Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship and work and troubles until Jesus comes. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. May God bless you this week as you serve him.